The meal in today's passage is one of those that everybody attending that event would never ever have forgotten their lives. What's the most memorable memorable meal that you have had that you can think of? Maybe a meal with families. Maybe a meal with friends. Maybe a date at some really high-class place like Vudemont or um, high tea at Windsor. Or maybe fish and chips at the beach with friends. What's a memorable meal that comes to your mind when you think of a time you've had together with people? Soon after we arrived in, in um, Australia, we came, became part of a group of friends at our church. Um, the, they had the same kids the same age as us. We kind of gelled together. Um, there were four other families. They'd been friends together for several years um, in the church. And um, they took us camping one weekend. And we thought, it'd be great. And so we went away. We didn't know this was the test. Are the all reds gelling enough with us to be part of our group? We passed the test. We became part of their friends. It sounds very clicky. (laughs) I don't think it's quite that way. Um, So we became part of their group. And then a couple of years later, another family joined us and we became six families, six couples with, with our kids. And we have done life together with this group of friends for the last 25 years. Holidays together, trips overseas, celebrating birthdays, celebrating anything we can come up with to be together to enjoy this little community that we have. Attending all our kids' weddings. I think we're probably finished now. <laughs> all the kids are married. Um, no, there's still a couple. One year, we went on a trip a long weekend to Adelaide. Uh, we had some cheap flights, we flew across, hired a couple of cars and uh, rented this beautiful big guest house in Port Elliot uh, for the weekend. One of our group, Julie, had been battling cancer and she was in remission, had been in remission, but cancer had come back. And as we travelled around this part of Adel- um, Adelaide on the, on the peninsula and, and just um, enjoyed the, the, the things that were there, Julie was tired and she was struggling and she was not doing well at all. Well, on our last night, we, um, the women decided we're going to have a roast meal. And so we went shopping, got all the food, got it together. Down the street that we were in, there was um, some rosemary growing on the nature strip. We went down and picked some rosemary for the lamb. And the rest of that afternoon was spent in the kitchen. All, everybody involved in making this meal that we're going to have to finish our weekend in Port Elliot. And the food was cooked, brought out to the table. We sat around this big table, all of us together, six couples, enjoying this great meal, laughing together, having great conversation. That meal was the last meal we had with Julie. She passed away about two or three weeks after that weekend. And for Glenda and I and for the rest of those who were gathered around that table, that night in Port Elliot, that meal is memorable. We think back to the community that we had that changed when Julie left. We're still together, but things have changed. Last week we looked at a meal of grace, a meal Jesus had in the home of Levi the tax collector. 
This morning we're going to see how grace, or how, sorry, how, how community is formed out of the grace that Jesus gives us as he welcomes sinners. In Acts 2 we see this great description um, of the early church. Day after day, Luke tells us in Acts, the early Christians gathered together. Day after day, the Lord added to their number people who were being saved. As the believers came together in community, as they, as they shared, shared meals together, people became part of their community, became part of their community of faith. We know that meals are significant. Eating together, who we eat with, who we don't eat with, says a lot about who we are. Meals communicate something. I didn't know this until I started researching for the, the sermon this week, um, but the English word for companion comes from two Latin words. Anyone speak Latin? Um, okay, I'm fine then. Um, two words. The first word is com, which means together, and the second word is pana, means bread. Together bread. Together we eat. Those we eat together with are our companions. So let's look at this meal that Jesus, um, rec- Luke records for us and, and um, Maxine has read for us today from Luke chapter 7. And begins with this verse, verse 36 in chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. There's a lot going on in here that we probably miss in our culture. We've come 2,000 years since this was written. So let me just give you some of the background here to help make sense of what's actually happening in this meal. So Luke tells us the story is taking place in the home of a Pharisee. We know all about Pharisees after last week. Pharisees were obsessed with two things. They're obsessed with purity, the need that they would remain pure. They were so concerned that they might actually accidentally break one of God's laws that they built 614 other laws around all of God's laws just to make sure they didn't slip up. They were so concerned with it. So concerned with purity and concerned about separation, keeping themselves apart from all these undesirable people who might contaminate them, who might make them not pure. And we saw that last week. The criticism they gave towards Jesus because what was he doing? He was eating and fellowshipping with sinners. And the worst of sinners, the tax collectors. Pharisees wouldn't be seen dead eating with those sort of people. And this is who invites Jesus to come to dinner with him or to come to some meal at his house. A Pharisee by the name of Simon. Jesus accepts his invitation. He's doing what he says, what others say about him, why he came, what his ministry was as as he came to be with us. He says his ministry is to come, to seek, to save the lost. He's come to serve, not to be served. And he comes to eat and to drink. 
And we saw last week that Jesus loved to eat. He loved to eat and drink. He, loved, he, he wouldn't give up an opportunity to go to someone's house or invite himself to someone's house and have a meal. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's accepted the Pharisees' invitation and now he's reclining at the table with Simon the Pharisee and the other guests. In Jesus' day, the people lied down to eat. They reclined. This is a Roman illustration, but they followed Roman practices. Tables would be put in a U-shape and um, there were couches behind the table. tables. People would lie down in this position. They were lying on their stomachs. Some would lie on their, on their um, elbows. And they would lie, lie in these positions with the food brought to the tables through that little gap um, they would serve the guests, the servants, they would replace their plates, they would fill up their wine glasses, take the empty plates away. And dinners would lie there, diners would lie there, holding the upper body up with one elbow, leaving the other hand to eat the food off the plates, and their feet, their legs hanging out behind them. Pretty uncomfortable way to eat, I think. <laughs> The other thing to note in Jesus' day are the houses. Quite different to our houses. Our houses usually or sometimes have a, a gate at the front, a bit of lawn, a bit of garden to keep us even further away from the road, a front door that's always kept shut, rooms all behind that front door. In Jesus' day, houses, particularly houses, larger houses of the, the middle and the, and the upper classes, looked a little bit like this one. There'd be a, a door out on the street, an open door, usually kept open, that would lead into a courtyard. In that courtyard, the rooms would all come off and towards the back of the house normally, there would be the dining room, open to the courtyard. So this courtyard, this is where the Uber Eats driver would come in with your food if you had phoned up for the latest pizza or whatever they were eating. Anyone could just wander in and be part of your household. When someone heard that an important person had come to town, maybe they were at your house, dining at your house, people would rock up. We want to hear this person. We want to hear what this person is saying. And they'd just stand in that courtyard listening to what's going on in the dining room, sometimes even taking part of the conversation. They weren't invited guests, but they just turned up and stood there, sat there, whatever they did, to be part of what was going on without the food. So this is the setup that is happening here in Luke chapter 7 as Jesus has this meal in the house of Simon the Pharisee. And as we, as we look at this, this story here in Luke 7, we're going to see three things. We're going to see how Jesus welcomes sinners. We're going to see how sinners welcome Jesus. And then we're going to see what the outcome of this, how community is built as sinners welcome other sinners. Meals are often intimate settings. It's where deep and, and meaningful conversations can take place. We can catch up with each other after the service over tea or coffee. But when we sit down and eat with somebody, conversation goes to a whole new level. We begin to talk about things that we don't just talk about as we're standing chatting. 
Meals are where real things can be discussed, where real conversation happens. And this is what happens in this story as this dinner progresses. Jesus welcomes sinners. As Jesus and the others are are reclining around this table in the Pharisee's house, eating, chatting, enjoying what's going on, there's a disturbance that suddenly disrupts this meal. A woman makes her way into that courtyard area and makes her way to where Jesus is, stands behind and begins to cry and begins to wet his feet with her tears and then decides to use her hair and starts to dry Jesus' feet. Now you might be thinking, well, is this another cultural thing? Is this, is this what happened when people met for meals in Jesus' day? No, this is weird then, just as weird as it is right now as we read it 2,000 years later. This isn't the first time that this woman has seen or heard Jesus. This is inferred in the text. It says she learns, she, she, she hears that Jesus is in this house, in this Pharisee's house. And so she prepares this gift, this gift of, of, of perfumed ointment, a gift for Jesus. And she crashes through this party to present this gift to Jesus. Maybe she's already heard Jesus speak. Maybe Jesus has spoken to her as he's moved about the town. Maybe she's just been watching from the sides and, and heard Jesus talking and, and, and what he said and she's, something's triggered something in her mind, in, in her heart. Maybe she's heard Jesus is a friend of sinners. Maybe she knows what's happened in, in, Matthew, in, in Luke chapter 5, so that Jesus went to the home of a sinner, a tax collector, and had a meal with him. Although it's not explicitly said in the text, this woman is a prostitute. You probably have worked that out. Um, Luke tells us that she lived a sinful life. If you think that, I think Maxie may have read the ESV, um, it talks about she was known in the city as a sinner. That's what Luke's getting at here. Um, She was known as this woman of the street. And somehow Jesus had impacted her life. It had changed her. She now feels free. She now feels forgiven. She feels clean. And so she comes to Jesus. She seeks him out. I think this woman was looking at a chance to meet with Jesus and she hears where he is and she takes this opportunity. I've got to go. I've got to go to Jesus. I've got to to thank Jesus for what he's done in my life. This is her golden opportunity and she comes. She's made her way into the courtyard and then she begins to make her way to this invitation-only place at the table where Jesus is eating. And once there, she becomes overwhelmed by her emotions. She begins to weep. And not just weep, she begins to cry so much that her tears begin to mingle with Jesus' dust-covered feet. And then she does this outrageous thing. 
that's not awkward enough, just this woman crying behind Jesus, she then lets down her, her hair and begins to wash and wipe Jesus' feet. In this culture, just as it is in the Middle East and many countries today, women didn't show their hair in public. The first time a man would see his wife's hair would be on their wedding night. So putting her hair down in public is, is a, an intimate thing that she's doing in public. It's culturally inappropriate. It's on a par with turning up at a dinner party topless for a woman. Everything this woman is doing is wrong. The actions she performs are inappropriate in any public setting. As weird as it sounds for us today, 2,000 years later, it's absolutely offensive for those around that table. But notice Jesus' reaction here in Luke 7. Jesus could have said, look, uh, what you're doing is appropriate. You, You need to stop. Don't do this. That's what he could have done. But he doesn't. He does nothing. He doesn't recoil. He doesn't reject her. He receives her affection. He receives her hospitality. He's not concerned with her reputation, what she's done in the past. He's not concerned with his own reputation being seen to be associated with this woman. To the Pharisees, she's like an infectious disease. Yet Jesus accepts her. He demonstrates God's grace by welcoming a sinner. Just before this story in, in Luke 7, verse 6, 36, where we are today, if you go back a couple of verses up to verse 34, you'll see the accusations that are being made about Jesus. Verse 34 of Luke 7. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, this is Jesus speaking, you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This story of a prostitute crashing into a party that Jesus is at shows that these accusations are true. We saw it last week with Jesus and, the, and, and, Levi, and Levi the tax collector. Jesus befriending one of the worst people in the society and then going to a meal with him and all his mates. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He identifies with us. He comes eating and drinking to show that sinners, us, can be part of his kingdom. When Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, came to write this gospel, he seemed to gather lots of stories about prostitutes and sinners. It's as though he was trying to tell us something. Do we really understand the grace of God? Do we really grasp how amazing this grace is? Do we really understand how outrageous God's grace is to sinners? That's kind of what Luke is probably trying to get to us here. So how do we react when a promiscuous woman kisses Jesus' feet? Do we celebrate that God's touched a broken life? 
Or do we recoil in embarrassment and disgust and comfortableness? There's a lot of cringing going around the table here in the Pharisee's house this day. But that's what the radical grace of Jesus does. It takes society's standards sometimes and just turns them upside down, our expectations. Jesus comes eating and drinking to show that he is a friend of sinners, that even a sinner can be a friend of Jesus, a friend of God. We are welcome to Jesus' table, no matter what our past is, no matter who we are, no matter what we have done, God welcomes us to his table. No one is beyond the grace of God. So how do we view people on the margins of our society? Our instincts to, to keep a distance, to kind of ignore the beggar, the druggie, the homeless person sitting on the pavement, the, the footpath in Elizabeth Street. These are the people Jesus ate with. He's not embarrassed by them. He lets them kiss his feet. Jesus is the friend of the riffraff, the traitor, the unrespectable person, the prostitute, the mentally ill, the broken, the needy, people whose lives are a mess. This is who Jesus comes to. And this is who Jesus ultimately gives his life to save. These accusations in verse 34 of Luke 7 uh, where, where Jesus is, is, is accused of, of being a glutton and a drunkard um, is actually a reference to Deuteronomy 21, verse 21, where it describes, the law of Moses, it describes what to do when your son is a rebellious drunkard. Um, and the law of Moses would say, so it's taken from the father and the mother, take their son to the city gates to meet with the elders and there, the men of the town are to stone their son to death. Pretty horrendous, pretty strict rules that were set up um, as, the, as the law of God under Moses. And so the people saying, Jesus, you are a drunkard. You're a glutton. Is actually saying he's a rebellious son of Israel. And as such... Jesus deserves to be stoned. But here's the irony. Jesus does die the death of a rebellious son. Not stoned, but hung on a cross. Jesus is not the rebellious son. We are. But Jesus dies the death of a rebellious son. He dies our death, my death, your death on the cross. Jesus welcomes sinners. That's incredibly good news for us today. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to this amazing grace of Jesus? The response we see here in Luke 7 of this, of this woman who comes to, to, into this, this meal 
is that sinners welcome Jesus. Or rather, those who recognise their sin welcome Jesus. So what's going on in the Pharisee's mind as all this is unfolding at his table? What's he thinking as this woman comes in and disrupts everything and starts this outrageous behaviour at the feet of Jesus? Well, we get it really clear, clearly explained in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. It says the Pharisee was saying this to himself. I don't think he was muttering too quietly because Jesus heard him. We don't know how big that table was that they were sitting around, but Jesus hears what's going on or what he's saying. Maybe even if he's just thinking it, Jesus reads his mind because Jesus is God. But somehow Jesus picks up what he's thinking, what he's saying. And Jesus turns to him and says this story, this parable. A denarius is a day's worth, a day's wage for a day labourer. And Jesus says, one person owes two months of wages. Another person owes the equivalent of two years of wages. And in this story, neither can repay their debt, but the money leader wipes their debt clean. He takes the debt away. He forgives their debt. Have you ever owed money like that? Imagine your friend or your parent saying to you, look, just forget about it. You don't need to pay it back. Consider it paid in full. Or you, or you receive a letter from the bank. Don't worry about your mortgage. But we'll just leave it. You know, it's all paid. No, no more repayments than you think. Yeah, that's a scam. <laughs> this is what happens in this story. These are huge debts. And the money leader wipes them, absorbs the debt. And then Jesus then asks Simon a question. Which one, Simon, will love them more? Jesus doesn't say which one's going to be most grateful, which one's going to show the most appreciation. He says which one of these two people will love the most? And Simon says, well, I suppose, you always get this feeling, he knows the answer, there's only one answer. I suppose the one who owed the most. If someone forgives you, you'll love them in return. If someone forgives you a lot, you'll love them a lot. Even Simon gets this. And then Jesus lays out some pretty hard truths for Simon. Jesus is looking at the woman at the, behind him as he says to, to the Pharisee, Simon, do you see this woman? It's almost a silly question. Of course Simon can see this woman. The whole dinner table can see this woman. Everything is stopped to watch what's going on at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, well, Simon, look at this woman and look at what she has done and what you haven't done. Verse 44. Um, do, you, do you see this woman, that, uh, uh, woman? I came into your house. You did not 
Give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. You go to someone's house for a meal today and probably they'll shake your hand or give you an elbow bump if we're being COVID safe. Take off your coat, offer you a drink, invite you to sit down. In Jesus' day, the first thing they would do is offer to wash your feet or get a servant to come and wash your feet um, to remove the dust that's built up on the dusty road. You're wearing sandals, your feet are exposed to the dust and then greet you with a kiss. But Simon has done none of this. He's been the host that wasn't. The real host, the real host in this dinner party is this woman who bursts into the, into the room, who wasn't even an invited guest. She's the one who welcomes Jesus and this isn't even her home. Simon hasn't shown Jesus the normal courtesies of a host. He hasn't shown any love towards Jesus. The only conclusion is that he hasn't been forgiven. Or he's been been forgiven little. Remember, Simon's life is structured around purity, keeping all the rules and more. A life structured around separation so that he wouldn't break any laws. And doing that, he believes, he's righteous. Someone who, who doesn't need God's or Jesus' grace, Jesus' forgiveness. Simon's decided Jesus can't even be a prophet. He doesn't understand who this woman is. He doesn't understand the character of this woman who's now crying at his feet. Simon's in for a shock because Jesus knows exactly who this woman is. Jesus can see who she is, what she is. He acknowledges her sins are many but she welcomes Jesus into her life. She knows her debt is huge. She knows Jesus has dealt with that. She knows her life is in a mess and Jesus has brought something back that she didn't have. Jesus has accepted her. He's welcomed her despite this life that she's lived. And the result of all that is she has this overwhelming love for Jesus. A love that risks being a total embarrassment to those around her. Much forgiveness equals much love. Simon, the Pharisee, on the the other hand, has no sense of his need for forgiveness. In his eyes, he has it all together. He's righteous. He's respectable. He has no sense of his need for forgiveness. And his response is little love, no hospitality, no welcome. So do we recognise our need for forgiveness? Do we acknowledge that there are things in our lives, in our past, 
that we need Jesus to deal with. Things that, that, that keep us from enjoying all that Jesus offers us. Free, forgiveness, freedom, the removal of guilt, cleansing. So do you recognise how much Jesus has forgiven you? How much he's done for you? And do you love him as a result of that? Do you love him outrageously as this woman does? Much forgiveness, much love, little sense of forgiveness, little love. When we see that we are just like this woman, when we recognise that, that we are in need of God's grace, God's forgiveness in our life, what's the outworking of that? Well, just like we saw with Levi last week, we welcome others. We welcome others into this, uh, this family. We welcome others as Jesus welcomes us. We welcome others to this, this community of faith that we're a part of. Jesus finishes off this, this conversation with Simon and he says in verse 48, says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who forgives sins? And Jesus goes on, keeps on going to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the community that we are part of. This community of, of sinners who have been saved by Jesus, who have been welcomed by Jesus, accepted and accepted his forgiveness of of us. We're a community of faith. Faith in Jesus who has saved us, who has rescued us, who has, has brought us together. Our vision statement here at RBC says this. Our passion is to be a community growing in Jesus and showing Jesus to the world. The highlight of that, the bold of that is, is my stressing of it. Community is right here in our vision statement. It's who we are. We're a community growing in Jesus and showing Jesus to the world. As a community, as a community of those who follow Jesus, we're called to practice his way of showing hospitality, of showing welcoming hospitality to those around us. Not because that's what Jesus did, but also because it's the way the kingdom of God is moving towards, what it's moving towards. In chapter 21 of, of the book of Revelation, we have this beautiful picture of, of God's, um, God's dwelling among his people after Jesus has returned and created this, this new heaven and this new earth. And it's the fulfilment of prophecy that we find in Isaiah, Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. And this is what the kingdom of God is, is moving towards. A feast where God will host um, all the people who are now part of his kingdom. Gathering people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every socio-economic group. This is what eternity looks like. Us together, having a meal where God is the host. 
a meal for all of those Christ has redeemed, forgiven, saved, who've had their debt cancelled, paid for by our Saviour, gathered together as one. At the table of Christ, the marginalised cease to be marginalised. The lonely cease to be lonely. Strangers become friends. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul criticises Peter. You know, Peter, the fisherman, Peter now a disciple of Jesus. Criticised Peter for what he's been doing. And the sin Peter was doing was, wasn't in line with, um, with, with God's, or Jesus' expectation, the gospel that, that Peter was proclaiming. Do you know what that sin was? It was not eating with people, with certain people. Peter had stopped eating with people that had lots and lots of times eating together, had stopped meeting with them because another group had come along and he wanted to meet with them and thought, if I meet with these people, these ones are going to be offended, so I won't, I'll stop eating with these ones. That was his sin. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not secluding others from eating at the table. So Jesus welcomes us as sinners. We respond by welcoming Jesus into our lives. We welcome others as Jesus welcomes us. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that we would welcome all to the table of Jesus that would open our, our hearts, would open our lives, even our homes, to welcome each other and welcome those who don't yet know Jesus. This Jesus who welcomes everybody from every walk of life, from every background they may have, welcomes them to turn from their sins, who welcomes them into his community of grace recognising that we have been forgiven much should lead us to offer that welcome, that hospitality to fellow sinners, to receive that, 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 that same forgiveness, that same grace that we've received, to offer hospitality, to welcome Jesus, help them to, to, to welcome Jesus as we have welcomed him. What an opportunity that we have in our community to be welcomers like that. Imagine someone saying to you, how, how come you meet with those people? How come you meet every week with people like that? It, it doesn't make any sense. You guys come together every week. You have meals together. But what do you have in common? These people are nothing like you. What's the deal? And we can respond. Jesus has changed my life. Jesus has changed me. He's united us together as a family. Look what happened in the early church in Luke 2 when they started doing things together, eating together, fellowshipping together. And that's an opportunity that we have. May we be this counter-cultural community that God has made of all kinds of people because we're one in Christ. That's who we are. 
part of the one family. Not focusing on those things that would separate and keep us apart in the world, but focusing on what Jesus has done to create this community of faith, those who have Christ as the centre. Looking beyond our walls to those who don't yet know Jesus, people in our street, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our friendship our friendship groups, people who need to know Jesus and the difference he can make in their lives and inviting them to be part of this community, inviting them to come to this table of Jesus to be with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and free. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for for rescuing us. Thank you for your givenness that reaches down to save the worst of sinners, to save us. We love you, Lord. We love you for who you are, for what you have have done for us, for for your amazing grace that sets us free. We love you for welcoming us into your family. Lord, as, as members of your family from all different walks of life, we pray, Lord, that you would bring us together, to bring us together in unity, to make us one, to grow us as as people together, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus. And Lord, help us to share this, this good news, this, this amazing news that we have, this, this, this life we have in you with those around us. Help us welcome others to know you and to be part of this community of faith centred around you. Father, build this church, we pray. Build this community of faith in Jesus. Amen.